It's going to be a fun round three. If you recall last year, we spoke with Nathan McDowell from Clemson University. He's back. We're going to discuss intersectionality and all the Democrats running for president. That and a whole lot more. We'll do it on this week's edition of the Corey Act Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. Folks, tell me you like it when we talk to people who aren't always on the same page. So we're going to do that some more this week on the Corey Truax Show. But first, before we dive into all of that, let me remind you, my name is Corey Truax. I'll be your host and discussion partner for the hour. Uh, amongst many other things, I'm the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets in Greenville, South Carolina, 1030 Sunday mornings at our property on 123 in Greenville. And we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. Let's get back to it by welcoming back to the show Mr. Nathan McDowell. Hello there. Glad to be back. I want to start here today. You have been t- uh, been out on the debate world. Before we get into actual topics, can you just talk about that some? You seem to be having quite the adventure with Clemson University's debate team. Where you been and what you've been talking about? Yeah, so it's really awesome. Uh, lately, we've been to South Africa, Ireland, and Budapest. We debate about a range of things, social issues, economic issues. Uh, the motion we were talking about that I thought was really fascinating was if you had an algorithm, basically a uh, dating website on steroids that could match you up with almost a perfect success rate with your soulmate, would you do it? And I think that was very interesting. Now, you get assigned your position, right? You don't get to decide how you want. Yeah, so to 15 debate. minutes before. You have 15 minutes to think through an argument. Now, real quickly, what did you get the pro or the con on that? We got the con okay. on that one. Yeah, well, you guys don't call it that, right? It's called uh, positive construction, and or do you- yeah. So a certain style of debate calls it that. We call it opening government and opening opposition. So like a government okay. opposition, it's the like British parliamentary style. But yeah, because I used to do some debate, and I remember we we talk about it as pro and con, but not what we mean. Um, okay, so uh, well, welcome back to the states, man. That's a great experience for a young man to have. Glad to have you back uh, on the show. Um, so out there in the college world, I know identity politics is a big part of what gets discussed on college campuses. And so first, I want to start with a definition. Uh, when we say the word identity politics, what do you mean? And then after you've given a definition, what, what significance do you think we need to be talking about it? Or what significance does it have to the cultural debate that we're in right now? Yeah, so I think identity politics is obviously politics focused on identity, but I don't think that these identities have to be confined to what we typically talk about. I think we typically think about gender focusing on race, sexuality, but I also think identity politics is looking at the way that religion, uh, location, rural versus urban, affect the way that we believe about things. So the uh, identity politics being the way in which we sort ourselves, measure policies, measure ideas. So in the United States right now, How is this affecting, what debate do you find it's affecting with us? Yeah, so I think one of the big debates within the liberal community right now that's been very relevant with me and some of my friends is whether we should vote for someone like Bernie Sanders or on the other end a moderate like Joe Biden versus voting for Kamala Harris or Cory Booker. I'm very intrigued now because, right, I don't see identity politics at all as the discussion of ideology. And so when you give me Bernie Sanders, left wing, basically a Marxist, almost he's not a Marxist, but he's heading that direction. Joe Biden, heck, if you put him in 1980, he's a Republican uh, ideologically. And so you put those two in juxtaposition to each other. But intersectionality wise, they're both old white dudes. So does intersectionality and identity politics affect how you think about those two guys? Absolutely, for sure. I think that even though they're very different politically, they still represent keeping the power in the same hands that it's always been for the liberal community. And so a lot of people, including me, think it's important to vote for people of color and women. And if it's someone like Kamala Harris, both, which I think would be really cool. So I misunderstood you then. I thought you were giving me Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders as opposites. But you were saying those two as a group— and then there's Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, these others as a group. Gotcha. Yeah, I think through the lens of identity politics, that's how the groups are. Obviously, political ideology is important to consider, too. And yeah. then they're on opposite poles. <laughs> so, I, uh, you know, I, the way I think through this, it, I just tend to be a what's right, what's wrong, what's smart, what's not. And the labels, the jerseys, the, the thing by jersey, I mean, I'm putting on my I'm a, I'm a proud black woman jersey or I'm a proud black guy jersey or I'm, a, I'm an LGBT person jersey. I'm wearing that label. I don't 
apply any additional credibility. I also don't diminish any credibility for that person. I only want to know this. What's your ideas? Are they good or bad? Or are they smart or not? And the intersectionality of, that you're interacting with in, the, in that liberal world thinking about candidates says, we do need to more consider those other labels. Am I correct? Yes, and I think that goes back to the belief that a candidate like Elizabeth Warren, even if her policies are very similar to someone like Kamala Harris, can never act in a way that benefits the black community and women on the same level that Kamala Harris would, or it would be much more difficult for her to. The way that I view it is not a little stronger than a tiebreaker, but it's definitely not the only thing that I consider. So it tends to be when I look at two comparable candidates like Warren and Harris, and one of them is a woman of color, I will tend to prioritize her because I think the nation could benefit from that perspective that it hasn't had historically. So make that case to, to me, if you don't mind, and I think probably the majority of my listenership, would say, hey man, I don't think you should care. I just think that uh, if someone has the right idea, we should, we should pursue them, and you shouldn't care one bit. So make the case that these labels and these other categories matter when choosing leadership. For sure. So I think that goes to the big assumption, or at least premise, undergirding identity politics, which is that certain groups are oppressed in society, and to correctly address that oppression you have to have an understanding of their experience that you can only have by by actually physically experiencing it not just trying to rationalize your way through it so i think if you're a woman like kamala harris a woman of color then you have firsthand experience with how mass incarceration works and if you think that mass incarceration is in many ways the new jim crow where we've created laws and an institutionally racist structure that's jailing uh black americans in that case we need a black perspective on that, and I think you could describe mass incarceration as a continuation of Jim Crow in, from the lens of having a perpetually white leadership that doesn't understand the problems that face the black community. I have two reactions to that, and I'll take any reaction you have from it. So one, I do, I do mean this. I can internalize and intellectualize what you're saying. I say I can see where it's coming from. I can't ever see myself landing there. Like, I almost want to. Like, you... I don't know, it feels like, uh, as culturally, it's become the enlightened position, right? And so you want to feel that way. I can't get out of it. Maybe it's because I'm an Enneagram 1. I don't know if <laughs> any Enneagram. Yeah. I'm an ISTJ, and I go, uh, I just don't care who said it. I, uh, I just want to know if it's right or wrong. So that is one. So I don't think I can get there. But second, I see that same thing, though, the identity politics, over on the Republican side in campaigns that talk about candidates like you know they really stand up for the little guy the common man uh, th he's really like one of us that's still an identity politics thing where it's not about what does he believe what's his ideology it's is he one of us and so you would you say that there's value in politics in measuring that is he one of us i think it depends on the situation. So my perspective on why certain identities matter, the liberal identities, right, race, gender, sexuality, I believe that those matter because those voices have been systematically kept out of the conversation, and I think that your frame has an inextricable impact on the policies that you make and the policies that you create. I don't know if focusing on religion just because you have that religious belief and saying I'm going to vote for them because they're Catholic, I view that very differently because I don't think Catholics have been systematically oppressed in our system in the same way. So you were, when you were on previously, we did talk about white privilege, right? We yes, a little bit, yeah. Because we were generally on the same page that I would just say my idea of white privilege was me as a about to be 33 year old white guy if you give me a 33 year old black guy my, you know, my age lived in a similar two parent household similar income situation in that household I would just assume I had some advantages and I've done a little better um, not by anyone's fault or to my credit but just I just kind of did a little better and that's how I defined white privilege did we, did we have this discussion a little bit yeah okay when you take that further, too, here I am saying, I acknowledge it. I acknowledge that I have had some advantage purely because of the culture that I'm in and because I am the majority of it. When I stretch that to, but, and Corey, it doesn't mean you can make good policy or understand great policy for 
races that you're not and sexualities that you're not, I go, hold up. I'm smart. I know things. I can come up with those policies. Is this a fair criticism that I have here? So I think that that's a fair criticism to some extent. Okay. Obviously, I disagree sure. uh, to some degree. I think the difference is I don't think that rationality in the way that you believe it exists exists. I think that we all fundamentally have a perspective that is shaped by our intuition and our experience. And I think that we can't use rationality as a means of like universalizing what's good. And if I were to get super liberal here, I would say the concept of rationality is really a concept of white male western thinking and so the idea of rationality in of itself i think you could argue in some ways is not neutral we just tend to think of male and white as the neutral perspective because it's been so overrepresented so let me push back because i've had this discussion when uh what was the uh what was this town in in missouri that got all torn up over michael brown it was near st louis ferguson Ferguson? yeah ferguson missouri yeah um so ferguson I got into discussion with somebody because I was making the argument. Burning stuff down in rioting is not a way to make a point. You actually make it very hard to listen to you. And I had someone say, well, that's how you make a point because you're a white guy. You make a point by making an argument. This is how this other culture makes a point. Or I would argue, right, objectively, objective morality, my way's better. Rationality is better than emotive screaming and hurting things and, and having, a, I don't know, property damage. And so I see what you're saying, that it's a Western way. Do you find an objection to be saying, yeah, it's the Western way, and it's the better way? Uh, Depends on what you mean by the Western way. If what you mean by the Western way is nonviolence, then I do completely agree with that. But let me go into some ways that I think the black experience could never be understood by a white person. So last time when I was on the podcast, I talked about a few things, um, how black unarmed men are way more likely to get shot than uh, white unarmed men. How they're much more likely to be detained for like the same crimes. They're much more likely to receive higher sentences for the same crimes. Uh, And also they're likely to have higher bail. Another one is just the laws themselves in some ways are disproportionate. They're still disproportionate uh, crack sentencing versus cocaine sentencing. So, I mean, that still exists. We've cut back on it It, 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 before when uh, Bill Clinton passed his criminal reform laws it was something insane like the penalty for uh crack you had to carry 70 times less of it or you had to have 70 times more cocaine the white drug to be punished oh i know all about this. yeah it's mad and trump actually scaled back some of that I which i think was really good one of pro- maybe the only thing that trump has done that i've really <laughs> liked i would say but I thought that was a really good move. So we see in the criminal justice system how we've systematically discriminated against uh, African Americans. And I think this was only made possible by having a bunch of white presidents who didn't understand their experience and understand the relationship that black Americans have with the police. Okay. I have to take a break. When we come back, we'll revisit that topic and do a whole lot more because we have lots to do on the Corey True Act Show. We were talking with Mr. Nathan McDowell. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you with us. If you would be so kind, connect with the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. It's a very weird name. I'm the only one with it. It's like Tigger, right? Tigger, he is the only one. You will find me if you search the name Corey Truax. You will also uh, get more content throughout the week. We're getting very active on Instagram. You should go enjoy that Enjoy that feed. And if you would also be so kind, wherever you're listening to the podcast, on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, wherever you're listening, if you would share the show with others, give it a five-star review, only if you think we've earned it. But I think we've earned it. Earned the five-star review, so hand that over, please, uh, and you'll help the show grow and share it with others. Uh, We're going to welcome back to the show Mr. Nathan McDowell. Hello there again. Hello. So here we go. Next up. We've been talking about intersectionality. One of my concerns with identity politics and intersectionality in the American culture is that it has too highly valued victim status. So much so that we just saw the Jesse Smollett case where he faked being a victim because he thought it would help him. And he's right. If he wouldn't have got caught, it would have helped him to be a victim. So one of my concerns being we've created a system that rewards victimhood, and I don't want that system. Yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from. I think one thing that's important to note is that there are tens of cases where hate crimes are faked 
and there are thousands where they're real. So I think most people who are claiming to experience hate crimes are real victims, and I think that those numbers do matter. I think the Jesse Smollett case is a very unfortunate outlier uh, of people claiming victimhood that they don't actually have. I also think that that comes back to the question of how much can you control your standing and your place in society? And I think when social mobility has consistently been on the decline, when the best predictor of the wealth you're going to have when you die is the wealth you have when you're born— realistically, you are affected by your socioeconomic class, your race, and your gender, and those control a lot of what happens to you. Now, I've been thinking about this lately. I do think the left puts too much emphasis on victimhood sometimes, but I also think that's because people who are oppressed haven't been recognized as victims enough. So I think we see this polarization where maybe victimhood goes too far, but people just want to have their pain and oppression legitimized. I also think I have to be careful bringing in some identity politics as a white man who does not understand the victimhood of other people. I'm not the one to say when their victimhood has gone too far. It's not my job to tell a woman you're complaining about your problems too much because I don't understand her experience and really can't say how much of a victim she's been to some degree. Doesn't that come, I think we're almost getting to like this fundamental idea of ob- just objective truth and objective false. Because if if someone is complaining too much, they either are or they aren't. And if I can gather enough evidence to say to somebody who's not a white dude, you're, you are dwelling on your victimhood status, why do I have to care if I'm right? If I'm right, I've collected the data, I got the information, you are caring for your victim status too much, why can't I not say that as a white dude? Yeah, so if I can get a little philosophical here, do. I believe in objective reality. I think we all have to, to function. But I think we also have to recognize that objective reality is filtered through our own experience. There are a number of filters. First, just the way we sense the world. The world doesn't look any objective way. The world doesn't sound any objective way. The world just is, and we've evolved certain senses to take in the world. Then that's filtered through our intuition, our experiences, filtered through a ton of different things in our brain before it gets to us. I think that our experiences are very different from experiences uh, of women and of people of color. So I think what that means is we're all getting pieces of objective reality. But there are some pieces that a black woman has that I don't have. And I think I need to be careful about when I speak of those pieces. Now, it's not that objective reality doesn't matter, because objective reality does matter when we, let's say we had statistics that showed there was no discrimination in hiring between black and white people. That's not true. Studies have found if you put a black name on a resume that's identical to a white resume, it's discriminated against. Let's say we didn't find any evidence of economic discrimination. Then I think you could dismiss their claims. But when there is extensive evidence uh, of discrimination and then they're telling me that they have this experience and I don't have any reason to disbelieve it I should believe it two other quick things the one of the first things you said I don't know if either one of us have stats off the top of our head let me say I don't have any data so I'm not gonna take this stance really stridently but you said you know there are there are tens and tens of hate crimes that are faked but there's lots of hate crimes that actually happen is that true I mean do we have a hate crime problem in the United States Yeah, so I recently looked that up after the Jesse Smollett case because I wanted a rebuttal to that because obviously I knew many of my conservative friends were going to point to that and say we have a problem with victimhood. I just remembered that the number of hate crimes that are faked was lower than 100, and I remember it was some thousands that actually, four thousands in my head, but I really don't know, but it was in the thousands. (laughs) One hate crime is too many, right? If one happened last year, we had one too many. That's no problem. No, 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 uh, no, no problem admitting that. But I do want to. I, I need to look at this myself. What the definition of hate crime is, because it, it, it's that's a stat that sticks out to me as one of those rape statistics on campus, where if an ex-boyfriend harassed you, you were a rape victim on some of these studies, and like, well, you weren't. You were a victim of something else. But so I don't know. I'll get into that at some point. Let me ask you this question to. I want to make an argument to you, see if you will want to respond. Does it affect you at all? But I would say this. Um, I, as the white, white male, have had the best life in America, but I don't think there's a better place on the planet. So now we're being subjective, not objective. Subjectively, there's no better place on the planet to be any minority group than the United States of America. I'd rather be Muslim here 
than anywhere else. I'd rather be a black woman here, rather be a black dude here, Hispanic dude here, than anywhere else on the planet. Like, this is the place to be if you are part of a minority, minority status, which doesn't mean we're perfect. I just think we're doing okay. Thoughts on that? I would disagree with that. Okay. I think there are certain nations such as Canada, probably a lot of nations in the European Union that I think are generally more progressive and okay. tend to legitimize and recognize the pain of oppressed groups more. Now, that's not always the case because in some of the most liberal countries, like Nordic countries, they also happen to be all white, which can sometimes produce some very strong minority effects. Sure. So that depends. But I would say generally there are a lot of wonderful things about America. I would not go so far as to say it's the best place, particularly for certain minorities. One last thought on inter intersectionality and identity politics before we move on. So I think we've primarily been talking about it from a, a left-ish perspective that has to do more with race, sexuality, and gender. Doesn't the alt-right fit into, aren't they also a branch of identity politics? Just Absolutely. Kind of a violent version? For sure. And I think this is a good point to recognize that in some ways, all politics is identity politics. I think the moral majority movement within republicanism, where they tried to appeal to people's religious beliefs and say, we as Christians should be a part of the Republican Party because they stand up for these values. I think when you appeal to the working class, when you appeal to the poor, the alt-right or the alt-left, whoever you're appealing to, I think that we are all voting to some degree based on our identities. That's why demographics are so powerful, even though the Trump election called some of them into question. Demographics is generally a very powerful tool because based on a collection of identities, your gender, your sexuality, your race, and where you're from, we can predict pretty well what you're going to believe. And I think that is a product of fundamentally, to some degree, all politics being identity politics. I will admit myself as the guy who wants to be the, I am the, I, I'm the logic guy, I'm the thought guy, that's mm -hmm. all I do finding myself sometimes hearing news and hearing it as the Christian guy. Like that's because that's my chief identity. And so when I hear certain news uh, about, I, let me say it this way. When I hear of a, when I hear of a baker who loses his business over not cooking, after not making a cake, I feel it deep in me. And I, but I recognize really quickly that is an identity politics thing in me. I'm identifying with the person in the story in a way that really does affect me. And I have stopped at some level, turned off a certain part of the brain that, evaluates the events for rightness, wrongness, logic, illogic, and thought, that could be me, and now I'm reacting to it in a way that's particularly emotional. All right, so anyway, uh, intersectionality, identity politics, good talk on that. Let's move here real quickly. You're around the left-wing liberal kids out there. I'm saying kids. This is what a 33-year-old guy says. <laughs> um, but millennials and Gen Z tend to be more left-wing than the, the older generations. Who's catching on, man? Who's catching on as the, the, the Trump beater? Uh, for 2020? Who's, ha who's out there that the young guys like? Well, it's really all different from my experience, really? and it really depends on what your priority is. People who really want to just beat Trump, if that tends to be their primary factor, they seem to support Joe Biden because he has name recognition, because he's a moderate, and to not stoke the anti-establishment sentiment that got Trump elected in the first place. Yeah. My Marxist friends, of which I have a few, obviously tend to like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders more so, you know, moving in a more socialistic direction. And then if you prioritize identity politics uh, above other things, you're probably going to support someone like Pete Buttigieg uh, because he's gay, Cory Booker because he's a black man, or Kamala Harris because she's a black woman. The name you never said there is the one that I predict is going to win the nomination. I, I I predicted that R Beto O'Rourke is going to be the nominee. I think he's going to be it. Um, is he not catching on at all? I think he is. Not in my community, because my, the debate community, we make fun of Beto O'Rourke a lot for the reason that he's basically a whitewashed Obama with no policy. He's all the hope and none of the substance, so I really hope that he is not the one who becomes the nominee, but we'll see. That is so funny, man, because he sounds like Barack Obama. His cadence, his diction, the words he chooses, and the way in which he presents himself, it is as if he watched some Obama highlight videos on YouTube, and he's just rolling with it. Yeah. He's doing his best Obama impression. And when you do ask for anything specific, has no idea uh, what, he's, what he's talking about. But he, I don't know, man, it feels like there's some energy there. Um, 
Is Kirsten Gillibrand and Amy Klobuchar, these people are just boring. Am I right? Yeah. I, most of my friends, including me, would say, you know, they're centrists. They're not really taking a hard line on anything. And if you're liberal, not going to vote for them. You know, for my part, I am not, I don't think I'm voting in 2020. Uh, there won't, won't be a Republican primary. Uh, and that's usually where I vote is Republican primaries. There's not going to be one of those in South Carolina. That's all over. And during the 2016, I landed with the Mormon guy out of Utah, uh, Evan McMullen. That's who I cast a vote for in 2016. I'm just going to sit this one out uh, and see uh, and see what happens, I think. Um, but you've not, you don't personally yet have a, someone you're hardcore supporting? I think I personally support Kamala Harris, not just because she's a black woman, because she has a lot of policies that I support, as does Elizabeth Warren. But since she is a black woman, I'm going to support her as of right now. If there turn out to be substantial policy differences between her and someone who happens to be white or a man, then I will vote for them. But I mean, we'll see how the debates go and what I comes out. I have a Kamala Harris thought. So I criticized her recently on the show. Imagine that. I criticized Kamala Harris. <laughs> Because I feel like she's, um, like her whole life, she had set herself up to run as a centrist Democrat. That's why she was in law enforcement. That's why she was attorney general. So that she could say, I've got some liberal economic policies, but I'm law and order. I'm the law and order candidate. And now she's on radio stations talking about all the weed she smoked. Like she's trying to seem like the cool kid. And I've, at least in my opinion, she's faking. Like you, you, your whole life you set up to run as a centrist. And now you're running as far as you can to the left, as fast as you can. And I don't think she's real. I can certainly see that. I think that's my biggest problem with Kamala Harris. Uh, to go full-blown liberal again, I think beginning with the war on drugs, which Nixon's aide admitted was a war on black people, you just couldn't say that anymore. I think that that is when we started really using the criminal justice system as a way to work against um, black men and women. I think that that got continued through with the tough-on-crime rhetoric that presidents had to have the win to win, the Bushes, the Clintons, and everything like that. And I, I definitely think, I mean, she was a prosecutor who was part, even though she's a black woman, she was part of an institutionally racist criminal justice system and locked lots of black people up. So, I mean... For possession. Yeah. In very simple things. For sure. And so I'm surprised it's not hurt her more yet. And there's debates coming where it's, she's going to get hit. There are going to be other candidates that hit her on, you put how many people in jail for things that you're saying you shouldn't, people shouldn't go to jail for right now. Um, that's a that's going to be a problem for her. Yeah, and um, bringing in ahead. identity politics there. If she were not black, she would. I don't think she would ever win the Democratic nomination. If she had been a white woman who had done that, that she would be done. You're totally right. She gets an, uh, a second chance there because of the identity politics that she brings into it. I thought I had one more thought there on Kamala Harris. Oh yeah, you said something about war on drugs. We are actually on the same page on the war on drugs. Being more of a libertarian. I think it's one of the biggest wastes of money, and it has been a, largely an unjust th- uh, system that's punished all the wrong people for all the wrong reasons, and it's, I think it's been a failure. I think it's been objectively a failure. I, but I also think all the other wars on things have been failures. So I think the war on poverty was a waste of money and a failure. Also the war on terror, kind of a waste of money and a failure. <laughs> uh, and so what I would just say to the federal government, stop declaring war on things. You're not good at it. Uh, all right, we'll move on. Um, I, want, I want to talk about the green for a moment, and if you want to branch that into Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whom I have mocked mercilessly on this show already, uh, Green New Deal, Uh, I made fun of it for being this unrealistic symbol, nothing serious about it. When you saw it, what what was your reaction? I mean, I completely agree. I think that's why a more pragmatic Democrat, like Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, didn't support it. for the reason that it's essentially a list of super idealistic things that would happen in a perfect liberal world, but will never happen. So, and I don't view that as just an innocuous, naive thing to do. You know, she's young, she's got a lot of passion, she's just supporting the things, but I mean, who cares? She's not hurting anything. I think it does hurt liberals and is a waste of political capital for a couple of reasons. I think it makes us look very radical. We already have a problem with people thinking that we're just some pie-in-the-sky hippies, you know, who are trying to make a lot, uh, manifest a lot of things that won't ever actually occur. Uh, and yeah, I mean, conservatives have just been roasting her for it. Yeah, and I mean, I think deservedly. I mean, be a more thoughtful person uh, if you're going to go out there and put that kind of policy out. Um, yeah, you said something about uh, it being pie-in-the-sky. Um, I have said this about the 2020 election. I'd love to to get your reaction. For Democrats to win, 
And I don't care if they win. I don't want them to. I also don't want the other guy to win. I wish there was a third option. So I don't care. But if you're asking me, like I said, that, said it this way. If you put me in a room with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Beto O'Rourke and Pete Buttigieg and all those guys, and they said, Corey, how do we win? I would go to the microphone and say, don't be crazy. As long as you're not crazy, you'll win. Because a lot of people think that guy's crazy. So just don't act crazy. And then the Green New Deal comes. You're crazy. Quit being crazy. And that's all uh, That's all you got to do. Is Any reaction to that strategically? Yeah. I mean, I think I agree with that in large part. I would also say in defense of Rashida Tlaib and AOC and the new socialistic Democrats, what I love about them, because I don't think they're holistically bad, is campaign finance reform. So especially I know AOC has advocated for she didn't take any money from like corporations, you know, it was a very grassroots campaign. I think that that's very beneficial and I think she correctly pointed out that a business as of right now can pay lots of money to get a politician elected and that politician is allowed to pass policy related to that business and pointing out the injustices created by how campaign finance law works. Well, since we're on these New fresh faces. Do you ever listen to Ben Shapiro? Occasionally, okay. yeah. Ben Shapiro has this joke. I can't take credit for it, um, but because the media was constantly calling Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, mm-hmm. calling calling them the fresh faces of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. his thing is they're so fresh, so face. I think it's really <laughs> funny that he does that. So since you mentioned two of them, we talked about a little Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Rashida Tlaib. Ilhan Omar has been the most troubling to me. Because she seems really not to like the Jews. Have you noticed this about Ilana Omar? I don't know if I would frame it that way. But. Okay. Uh, so, so you haven't been troubled by her language. Because there is a difference between being uh, wanting Israel to behave differently and being anti-Jew. Because I think I want Israel to behave differently. Right. In some ways. But I, she's, at least, are you picking, do you pick that up at all? I think she seems to have a... A, a bit of anti-Semitism in her bones. Well, I've been struggling with that. So what, what comments do you think are most illustrative of anti-Semitism? Um, so she, she, really some retweetings, of retweeting people who have, uh, done, have given some speeches that do the, from the something to the sea, Palestine shall be free, from the river to the sea, uh, which is an old trope of, we're going to kill the Jews, because in between the river and the sea, that's Israel. And so... She retreated some of those people, and that's a little too. I mean, for that matter, there was a hate, uh, anti-hate resolution on the House floor to respond to her because of some of those. Uh, so I'm just troubled by it. And um, I mean, to the Democrats' uh, credit, they seem to try to respond to her at least some. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi definitely kind shut that down, laid the smack down a little bit. <laughs> All right, we got to take our next break here. When we return, uh, I don't know. We'll do a couple other uh, quick quick items of discussion between a conservative and a liberal. These are the classic conversations we should be having in the country. We'll do that with Nathan McDowell when we return on the Corey Truax Show. Welcome to the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. Glad you have joined us. One more reminder, you can get all kinds of content on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and also at CoreyTruax.com. If you're not doing that, you're depriving yourself for no good reason. You should certainly go get all the content that's being shared there. We're going to finish up our conversation now. It's a conversation between a right-winger, that's me, and more of uh, someone closer to the left-wing. Would you call yourself left-wing, Nathan McDowell? Yeah, I'm pretty liberal. <laughs> and we're doing it, watch this, with civility and intellect, and we don't hate each other. It's kind of awesome. Uh, and so it's a good model for everybody else on how to talk to people you disagree with. We're going to go back to intersectionality for a minute because we got very practical very quickly in that discussion. And so I really want to get to the core uh, philosophically of what identity politics and intersectionality is and from whence they came. Nathan McDowell, I believe you have some of that history. Yes. So one thing that I think is fascinating about identity politics is it arose as a reaction to Marxism. Um, because before the 1960s, leftist ideology was centered around Marxism, communism, equality, and things of that nature. And the thing, the essential idea of Marxism is that history can be described in terms of class struggle, and class struggle is produced by the economic system that you have. What this means is that we tend to focus on economic status over certain identities. You know, it's whether you're poor, it's whether you're the proletariat poor, right, or the richer bourgeois. So, 
identity politics was saying, no, there are issues that we have with women's rights, with gay rights, with black rights that can't be addressed only by socioeconomic status. And so the new left came about in the 1960s saying, we're going to focus on identity politics. We're not just going to talk about economic class. We're going to talk about your race and your gender and how those affect how you move through society. I knew none of that. So the philosophical mother, grandmother of what we see today was really built out of the the classic struggle, which was primarily throughout the 19th century, excuse me, the 20th century, was really more, you're the rich and you're the powerful, you guys have the power, we're the non-powerful, and then it became other groups along the way. I had no idea. Yeah, and what I think is fascinating about it is Marxism and conservatism share that emphasis on economic class in the sense that a common reaction to institutionalized racism is, well, that's just a product of more black people being poor. It's not a product of actual racism. It's just about the class that you're in, which Marxists would actually agree with that, which I think is an interesting overlap. That is interesting. I've never seen it that way. And something in me deeply wants to respond like I disagree, and I can't figure out how. <laughs> um, I guess that's just how that works. Yeah. Um, that is a weird philosophical intersection because uh, for conservatism if uh, let, let me defend conservatism for a minute we i think I've, one of the fundamental things we believe is just in individualism and so uh, that's an idealized concept sometimes the idea that it, it, if all things equal individuals achieve groups don't achieve like i get really uncomfortable anytime a group gets talked of talked about I don't like talking about black people do this or Hispanic people have this problem or women experience this. I don't like it when I hear people say old white guys do this. Like under, like I just thought about, I think through those things and go, can we just talk about Jim or can we just talk about Nancy? Why do we have to talk about uh, groups? I want to talk about individuals. Do you see where I'm coming from? I'm wanting to talk about individuals instead of groups. I do. I think the reason we have to talk about groups is because when we treat everyone as an individual, this is essentially being colorblind, uh, you know, not paying attention to people's race, people saying, oh, I don't see color, uh, taking it to an extreme. Sure. I think that the issue with that is if you believe that there are fundamental inequalities in our society and we choose to look at everyone as an individual, that means we're not looking at how women are discriminated against as a group. That means we're not looking at how black people are discriminated against as a group. So if you agree that our oppressed people, treating everyone as an individual masks those problems in the same way being colorblind does. In a perfect world, your race does not affect who you are as a person. I don't pay attention. I, don't, I, I notice, and you can be proud of your culture if that's connected to your race, but I don't think of you any differently if you're white or black, and that's not something that has to be salient. When groups, even if, it's, you know, even if you think race is a social construct, it's been a meaningful one that has caused a class of people to be discriminated against, and ignoring that through this kind of colorblind ideology perpetuates the inequality that exists. I don't think we're going to end up agreeing. I just want to give you one more response, and you get the last word on this if you want it. I hear two sentences you just gave there. To not, to not acknowledge the oppression of women or the oppression of a racial group. And I say, well, I don't, I'll say it, I don't want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge when a woman is discriminated against. I want to find out that woman's name. And when I want to find out who did it. And I want to go address it. I want to find out when this African-American person was discriminated against. And I want to go address that and try to fix it. I genuinely don't even know, like, if you put me in a room and I'm a, I'm a solutions guy. And someone says, solve discrimination amongst the group. I don't know. But do you have a one situation? Because if you have one situation, I'm in. Uh, so I don't know. I think I just land on, I can solve individual situations. I can't solve sy systemic things. Well, yeah, and I think that falls back on, is it more of an individual or institutional problem? So if you think it's an institutional problem, which I do, it must be fixed through institutional change. And I do think there are some things that we can do, like affirmative action, better training for police officers, better weeding out of certain police officers, a variety of things we can do to try and fix those institutions. It's definitely a bigger challenge, but if these institutions are making a certain group of people's lives significantly worse, it's worth that. I'm not going to run this rabbit, but I just found out that you and I really agree about something about the police. Maybe we'll do it like in a bonus thing, uh, but man, we, we pick the police wrong. Uh, the people we give badges and guns to, that is not a good system. Um, all right, I'm going to give you three items. You get to pick what we do next. Right. So, one, talking about the Electoral College and the differences between right and left there. Number two, 
I recently did an episode about reparations for slavery. I wonder if we want to talk about that. Or three, like the entire world is talking about the Robert Mueller report. Of those three, what interests you the most? Would you mind if I picked option D because I found a way to end up sure. not talking about intersectionality again? Uh, so I okay. still want to bring that up. Oh, that's great <laughs> to actually get to the core philosophy. Yeah. You riff on that, man. It's all yours. Okay. So... Once we started focusing more on identity, there was an issue that in the black rights movement and in the women's rights movement, certain people got ignored. So if we look at it, when uh, civil rights became prevalent, at first it was just civil rights for, for black men. And when the uh, feminist movement was happening, it was mostly old, rich, white housewives, right? And it wasn't black women and what they experienced. So intersectionality arose Chiefly from that to say we as black women are being ignored. We're the last people to have our voices heard within the liberal community. And we need to recognize interlocking systems of oppression and how those function. And I think an important concept of intersectionality, too, is not just the oppression of a woman plus the oppression of a black person equals the oppression of a black woman. They're, they're interaction effects. For example, if you are a gay black man, black men partially because we tend to characterize them with our societal narratives as more aggressive. They have more burden on them, I would argue, to be masculine, to be the stereotypical man. This means that a gay black man who is going to tend to flout those gender norms of what a man should be faces unique challenges that neither a black person or a gay person by themselves face. So I would say the strength of intersectionality is two things. It's recognizing groups that have been ignored within the liberal community. So it's not that black women matter more, but it's black women have been left out more and we need to bring them in and also recognizing whatever the non-positive version of synergy is, right? The synergistic effects of interlocking oppression where it becomes more than just black plus woman. It's a new form of oppression. I, mean, I can chew that over. I mean, I'm glad to. I'm, I'm, as I think through things, I often ride around in the quiet and the silence and think through these things. I, I often just think, even from what some of the things you just said there, Something deep in me goes, but I can interact with the gay black man uh, in a way that's still an individual. I don't need to put him in the in the group so that interlock and all that. I get where you're coming from. I think I just got to chew it up some more. Uh, but that's well said. Um, anything else on intersectionality? I think I'm good. Okay. Um, all right. That's a, this, I'm trying to come up with a way to make this a segment, like choose your news or choose your discussion. Those three things, Electoral College, Reparations for Slavery, or the Mueller Report. What's most interesting to you? We can do Reparations for Slavery. I think that I think it transitions quite yeah. well. Um, so here's where I landed, because there was actually a pastor here recently, a guy named Tabidi Anabawele. I covered him on the show last week, last episode, or two episodes ago. I don't remember. Uh, but he's basically said, if you're a Christian and you're not for, and you're not for Reparations for Slavery, you're a terrible sinner, <laughs> uh, and you're thinking about it wrong, about restorative justice and all that. And so I made a moral statement. I actually think he's right. I think morally, there's a great case to restore what was stolen. But then practically, I got no idea how to do this, man. I look at the idea of reparations for slavery and trying to find who the actual descendants of slaves are and who the actual descendants of slave owners are. And knowing that I'm going to run into some descendants of slave owners that are meth heads in West Virginia, and then I'm going to find some descendants of slaves who are millionaires in big cities, and I don't even know how to do it. And so, like, morally, I'm not opposed to it, but I think practically it's impossible. So, I think the issue there is assuming that because we can't get it exactly right, we shouldn't try. So, I would view it the same way that I view the welfare system. And this comes to competing characterizations of what a poor person looks like, too. But on the liberal side, I don't think—and I've been actually looking— uh, for stats on this, and I couldn't find any. I don't think drug use is as prevalent in low SES communities as we characterize it to be. I don't think most poor people are lazy, and I do know the data tends to bear that out. What's SES mean? More people. Oh, sorry, socioeconomic status. Okay. I do know that um, poor people do not tend to be lazy. The stats show that welfare tends to help them get more jobs, not less. Uh, but so it's so some of it's about your characterization of poor people, but yes, there will be some lazy people, and I'm fine with a welfare policy that doesn't function perfectly. Sometimes lazy people will 
take advantage of it. But I think for the most part, it's helping legitimately struggling individuals get off their feet and get a job. I think the same thing about reparations. Maybe we give a little bit of money to a black person who has not been directly affected by slavery. I'm fine with that outcome. I think we need to do our best to try and address that problem. Can I wonder if we can agree on this. We may not. I think we can, though. I don't like the way that Democrat candidates for president are using that word. They say reparations, and then the next things out of their mouth are about tax policies and investing in neighborhoods. Like that's that's not a rep- that's not reparations at all. Um, are, have you heard them use this language? Yeah, I and I, I agree like with that. Language. Yeah, we agree. Look at us. <laughs> this is fantastic. Um, okay, so I. I know it can't be done perfectly. I get your idea here that, well, we can't do anything perfectly. There's no reason not to do something. Uh, I, I, would li- I guess I'd want to do the work to see, because uh, there, there, there is a great deal of uh, possibility for injustice where you punish the wrong people. And I don't want to punish the wrong people, but all right. So we've, we're on the morally, we're actually on the same page. Yeah, and I think it's like you said, it all comes down to how close we can get right because if it's just really a shot in the dark and we're just throwing money out there and hoping it gets to the right people and it turns out to be functionally impossible then no i don't think we should do it because also like specific to me i'm gonna i'll go play the card um i don't think i should be punished at all i don't think any money should come out of my pocket at all uh for uh, reparations for slavery but maybe if you can find somebody i'm in like specifically at the you know at the time if i could go back and punish all the slave owners and take all their stuff cool let's do it What's tragic is that we almost had a much better society because when you look at black wealth, it's a straight line, whereas white wealth is increasing because right, wealth yes. tends to accumulate. Yeah. But black people just haven't been able for the obviously some of them have, but in general to get past that threshold to where you can start accumulating wealth, which is why it's just flatlined. A lot of that is property. And Abraham Lincoln had a policy where he was going to give 40 acres of land to every former slave, and that could have made a huge difference in their future lives. Andrew Johnson became president after Abraham Lincoln got assassinated, and he said that that policy was reverse racism, and for that reason, we couldn't do it. I think that's also notable, not to say that, well, that's another conversation, not to say that you can't be prejudiced against white people, as some do, and because that wasn't reverse racism, nothing ever is, because I don't think that's a philosophically sound argument, but I do think it's important to recognize a history where whenever we've tried to do things to help out the black community, the cry has always been reverse racism. Yeah, it's true, and I think sometimes that cry is accurate, but sometimes it has been overblown. Um, I'll, I'll admit that totally. Um, so, uh, are you good to do some bonus podcast material? Yeah, sure. So if you're listening live on Saturday morning at Christian Talk 660, uh, there's going to be some extra podcast material out there for you to go pursue. We're going to talk to Nathan McDowell a little bit more. Uh, I think I do want to do Electoral College. You're good with that. Uh, do you have and some older report thoughts? Yeah. And then I good. thought about this, too. You're in college. Did you have any response? We have about two minutes left on the actual show. To the college admission scandal? To these people who are paying their to get their kids in? Yeah. Give me the thumbnail. Please. I mean, the classic liberal response is that this is what we always knew was happening. We just have a tangible example of it, right? Where we know the wealthy are able to use their power and privileges to get advantages that other people don't have. And this is just confirming what we all know in a more objective way, where people have been spending their money to cheat to get into top universities. It's fascinating that they do this, and I think it indicates that being wealthy at that point is not about the money, because it's much more of a status symbol. Oh man, when I covered this, I covered that in depth for parents, it had nothing to do with getting them a quality education. It was about going to the country club. It was about going to their friend's house and saying, I sent my kid to this place or that place, to UVA, to Southern California. I sent mine to Yale. It had nothing to do with educational quality. Uh, Did you, as as a high achiever, you are a high achiever academically, um, is there any part of you that goes, hey, that's not fair. You guys aren't nearly as smart smart enough to be where you are. Yeah, there was definitely a little part of me that did that that was frustrating. But I think I also, for myself as an individual, have been trying to be less competitive and recognize that even if I'm not at the top of the top, it'll be okay. So it didn't bother me as much as it uh, would have used to. (laughs) So I had some other reactions. Like, I understand. I'm about to be a jerk about something here. Mm -hmm. I understand paying to get your kid into Princeton or Yale. Pay your kid to get into Southern California. Like, that place isn't even, the like, the top five university in the state. Like, it just Cle- – I think Clemson's a higher uh, a higher academic rigor than you probably will find in Southern California. 
Uh, UCLA has a great reputation. Stanford, great reputation. There's some great places in California. But USC is not known as one of them. And to have paid, I think that was Lori Lori Laughlin's kid, like 500 grand or something to get into that place. What a waste of your money. All right, we're all out of time for the actual show. We'll do some bonus material. So go find that on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. You can find it on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, Overcast. Literally, if it's a podcasting app, you will find the Corey Truax Show, and it's not hard to find. It's not like my name is Mike Smith or something. It's a very weird name. Just look for Corey Truax, and you will find me there. Thank you for listening. I do mean that. Thank you for giving us time on Saturdays or if we're in your earbuds right now as you're running on the treadmill. Wherever you listen, I am grateful for it. If you would be so generous, you can share the show with others. Remember, you can always support the show on Anchor. I would appreciate it if you would. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, peace and love. Welcome back. We're doing a bonus. This is a long time, no bonus. I mean, I've done a few of these over the years, but not uh, not a lot. So we're welcoming, welcoming back to the show, Nathan McDowell. Glad to be here. All right. So two things we didn't get to on the show. Electoral College. I am hearing Elizabeth Warren on stage in Mississippi tell me how she wants to do away with it. I'm not married to it. I'm fine with doing away with it. I am interested in other ideas. So where do you stand, sir, on the Electoral College? One aspect I think is fascinating is how 11 states, I believe, including Colorado, have introduced legislation to where their Electoral College votes will go to whoever the majority candidate is. So they're trying to subvert the Electoral College, which there's a question of, is that constitutional when the Electoral College is enshrined in the Constitution? I think it is, Um, because if I'm anything, I'm a states' rights guy. I'm a Tenth Amendment guy. The states get to decide how they give out their votes. And if you get to a system where what you're, well, what we decided as a state is we want our electoral college votes to go to whoever gets the national popular vote. All right, cool. You got to do whatever you want to do. Um, And I would challenge the constitutionality of the other direction. You can't tell a state what to do (laughs) with their electoral college votes. Um, So what is the, why are folks on the left so upset with the Electoral College? Well, I think they're obviously very upset about it right now because they hate Trump and Trump became president because of the Electoral College. For me personally, I think the Electoral College has never made sense to me because I don't know why the region you live in matters. So if you take a very simplistic toy model, there's 100 people in my universe. 50 live in one part, 50 live in another part. Let's say 25 move. So now there's 75 in one, 25 in another. Should it be a pure democracy where the majority rules? Or should we prioritize that 25 one more because they live in a particular region? And I don't know I don't know why we would, because I don't think the region matters. It's about the number of people, and the point of a democracy is to make a majority of people as happy as possible. So, yeah, I, de- I have two problems. One, we are not a democracy. Democracies suck, and I can say that because we're on the bonus now. We're not doing it on air. <laughs> um, I can't stand the idea of majority rule. People are dumb, man, uh, and so we've got to have some kind, of, uh, some kind of protection against the stupidity of the group. Uh, so... The, where, it doesn't matter where you live, that point. To me, that's on lifestyle. So one of the reasons I like the Electoral College, again, I'm okay with doing away with it, just depending on how what we're going to replace it with, because I am 100% against a national popular vote as the replacement. I have some other ideas I'd be glad to share. Um, the, the idea there being metropolitan areas have different values. I visit New York City often. I love New York City. But the lifestyle of New York City is very different than Dubuque, Montana, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, like it's just, and so there seems to be an, an oppression of a different, you're talking about oppression, the oppressed, the oppression of the rural person. And so why on earth, if we talk about the why on earth, why on earth does the person in Montana have to live by the values of the person in Manhattan? They should leave each other the heck alone is what they should do. And the electoral college allows for some protection for the person in Montana, Mississippi, and North Dakota, and all those places against the the big metropolitan places. That's how. Uh, that's why I like the Electoral College. So in response to the first aspect about democracy, I agree. We do have representatives to mediate between uneducated people and theoretically more experienced, more ethical, but that's never been the case, <laughs> more, uh, yeah, better politicians. I don't think that this gets in the way of that because this isn't about we still have a system of representation. It's just how we decide who represents who in response to the second contention. I think the issue is that it's a zero sum game. So in situations, for example, the presidency where 
the someone's going to win, right? So we're going to have Donald Trump or we're going to have Hillary. It's a lot better for more people in the cities to control rural areas than less people in rural areas to control the cities. Because that's essentially what that means. If you live in a rural area, your vote is going to count more than someone who lives in a city. And I don't know why the regional interests, even though I understand they're different, they're still smaller. And I think it's, I wouldn't say it's a tyranny of the minority, but to use the classical term, tyranny of the minority is worse than tyranny of the majority. Uh, so I, I can agree with that, uh, that formulation. Yes, tyranny of the minority is worse than tyranny of the majority. Uh, but there's one word you said in there that was the key that I wish I could get everyone on left and right and middle to agree with. The key was it is, it's not good for the people in the big cities to control the rural and the, uh, the rural to control the big. Right. Control is the problem. The problem is the vested authority we have placed in one government to govern people in Montana and Manhattan. The vested power we have given someone in Washington, D.C. to come up with the same law and policy to affect someone in Greenville, South Carolina and San Francisco, California. That's insane. So one of our big problems here is that what we're electing is too powerful. What we're electing is a bad system. It's ungovernable, the idea that we would have one government make that kind of universal policy for places that are so different. Let me give you one of my changes, because I don't, I mean, I'm fine with getting rid of it, but I don't want to go to national uh, votes. Um, uh, let me find it. Oh, yeah, here's one. How about we still have a uh, 435, like 535 votes, but when you win a state, when uh, let's go with South Carolina. Donald Trump won South Carolina. Instead of getting all nine of our electoral, electoral college votes, he immediately gets the two votes that were assigned for senators. So you get the two that go to for senators. And then it goes by congressional district. So he would have gotten two plus five because Hillary Clinton won two congressional districts in the state. She won Charleston and Columbia. And so that it feels to me like a hybrid where you still have Montana and North Dakota and Iowa and South Carolina. They still get a say as the small states, but not so much of a say. So you can still so Hillary Clinton can go into Austin, Texas, and take all six of those districts, and she gets those votes. And Donald Trump, if he somehow goes into San Diego and takes, I think there's some there's some Republican districts down in that area, he gets those. Thoughts on that idea? I think that's interesting. I do support a pure popular vote, you know. So I like that, but because it's it's closer to what I want, you know, I would say that that's sure, a, that's a compromise. Yeah. So I just don't think anyone's vote my vote should matter less if I move to Chicago you know I think yes you have some regional discrepancies but I always think that it should be by the person could I move you towards the direction of the federal government should just matter less than it does I think that's an interesting contention I do not have a thoroughly fleshed out opinion on federalism I sure do like this is a <laughs> yeah. huge theme for me that makes sense with yeah. conservatarianism a huge theme is I don't want to. I don't want to force people in New York to live by my values. I just. I think it's a terrible idea for me to do. I think it's a terrible idea for Greenville, South Carolina values to be imposed upon Miami, Florida. That's bad. Equally, your values in San Francisco, you can keep them, and I'm gonna keep mine. And then we'll be a mobile people that can move around a little bit. I think the the problem. One of the reasons we all hate each other so much is because we do find the uh, the the consequence of these decisions when the federal government. It's changed from Republican to Democrat. It, it affects too many people. And so we're terrified of each other. And if we, I think I've said it to you before, I just want the mayor to matter more. I want the mayor of Easley to matter to me more than the president is. I, I wonder how many people even know the name of their mayor, know the name of a county councilman. And I've, there's something about localism that feels healthy, that feels safer. Uh, and I think it causes us to all like each other better because I actually specifically, I'm being told media-wise, I'm supposed to dislike deeply someone in San Francisco because they want to impose on me. And they're supposed to dislike me because they, I want to impose on them. What if we just said, hey, man, you can do what you want. We're going to do what I want, and we're good. So anyway, that's a federalism point. Um, okay, one other thing I want. What was the other thing we wanted to do? It was uh, Electoral College. I know Mueller Report, but you had another one you wanted to do I did, more. I did. Um, well, mo first on the Mueller Report. I just don't. Like, I'm okay. So I'm okay with re releasing it. I kind of just want to forget it ever happened. I'm just not emotionally invested in the thing. Do you have any thoughts on it? I mean, I really want to see what's in the report because a lot of people have been indicted. Obviously, no one got indicted for collusion with Russia. 
But there were some implications that seemed as though, I mean, there definitely people talked about collusion with Russia. They talked about, you know, them working with WikiLeaks and releasing certain emails. They talked about what they were going to do on Facebook. So there was definitely something going on there. And I just think more knowledge is better. I do think there's potential for Trump to have obstructed justice. I think that's currently unclear how strong that potential is because William Barr was appointed by Trump for this purpose, you know, Trump got really angry at Jeff Sessions because he recused himself. So it's clear that Trump wanted to use the attorney general to shield himself in some way. William Barr releases this uh, memo that the president cannot obstruct justice if or it would be very difficult to say he did if there's no underlying crime. So he takes a clear stance that's in favor of Trump, and then he's appointed. So for that reason, because it's become such a political process, I'm like, I just want to see what Mueller said laid out in front of me. I am fine with releasing the whole thing. I think it's probably healthy. I will give you this, though. I mean, I like it. I think the Russia stuff with Trump is how the crazy right wing was with Kenya and Obama. I think it's that level. Like, I think the birtherism of the right, that insane stupidity that the guy was born in Kenya— I think it's the same conspiracy mind that is there, something happened with the Russians. Donald Trump is not sophisticated enough to have done anything like that. Maybe people around him were possibly. Uh, but the idea that they were even able to affect an election, I think it's conspiracy level Obama was born in Kenya. Then it, is that, it's not fair to you, I know. Yeah. Um, but that is, oh, anyway, that's where, I, that's where I sit on it. I think they tried. I think the Russians tried to do, to do something. I just don't think they succeeded. I think I know what happened in 2016. I think Hillary Clinton was terrible. <laughs> I think she didn't go to I. She didn't go to Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin enough. And there was some white resentment in those three states that had just just enough people barely. Basically, he won the election by hundred thousand votes in those three states. If those three states switch by that small little margin, she's president of the United States, and uh, that's what happened. It wasn't the Russians. Okay. Any other thoughts on the Mueller report before I move on? To push back on that, please. Yeah. I think it is different when. A lot of members of his campaign have been shown to have associations with Russia. I also think, no, this is going to get conspiracy theory-esque, and I know it whenever I think it, but it is weird that Trump, whenever he went to Russia, contradicted the reports of our own FBI and instead chose to side with Vladimir Putin and say, well, Putin said he didn't meddle in the election, so I believe him. What I believe him. What am I going to do? And I was like, maybe the same thing you do with our own media organizations, which you call fake news. Like, call out the president of an authoritarian communist country instead of undermining our own FBI. That seems... No, this this is going to be really conspiracy theory. That seems weird, and it almost seems like Putin's got something on him, and he'll let it go if Trump doesn't treat Russia nicely. One of my themes is never attribute to malice what you can attribute to stupidity. And I think the president's stupid. I think he's a dumb guy with a low IQ. I don't think there's any malice with what he did with Russia. I, I, again, I don't think they were organized enough. I don't think Putin has anything on him. I, and because I, I demand evidence uh, for, for basically anything that I think. And so it's just one of those, like, I, I've wanted to say to the country, everybody move on. If you want to remove the guy, beat him in 2020. Heck, I can't wait till he's gone. I just find the Russia thing to just be, I find it tedious. I find it tiresome. And it's it's uh, I think there's this instinct for both sides. Back with the Obama Kenya thing, and now this for the Deus ex machina that there should be the God of the machine come from the sky and take <laughs> the evil one away. And if Obama would have been found to be Kenyan, he would be removed. And if Trump would have been found to be bust up with the Russians, he'll be removed. You know what? Why don't we just be normal and beat him in an election? How about you do that instead? Yeah, and I by no means think it's clear that Trump colluded with Russia. Right. I think my contention is just that. It's plausible that he did, whereas the Obama-Kenyan thing I don't view as, as plausible. It was not even plausible. It was stupid from the yeah. beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Just idiotic from the beginning. Um, okay, I think one more I had was this. We never did, on the, on the normal show, get into the Infant Born Alive Act. Mm-hmm. Ben Sass goes mm-hmm. to the Senate floor and says, here's a bill uh, that says if you mess up an abortion and a kid lives, you've got to give it medical care. And Democrats in unison say no. Don't care for that kid. We're going to let that kid die. That's what the bill is. I don't. If you want to reframe that bill, I'm cool with that. Uh, but I don't know how anybody on planet Earth could have voted against that bill. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think that that is very crazy. 
I think that it is a product of this polarization that we've seen around the issue of abortion. And I want to touch back to what I said last sure. time, where I said, and this, this is going to be controversial for both sides, but I think intuitively we know that a single cell is not really a life. And intuitively we also know that that baby right before it comes out of the womb, is obviously a life. But I think that, and I'm going to bring in some Ruth Bader Ginsburg here, who I heavily agree with, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very smart. And if you look at what she did, first, she was barred from a law firm that she wanted to be a part of. So she became a law professor and started to file amicus curiae briefs, friend of the court briefs, so she could argue for cases. And she went first for things that actually made life kind of harder for women. So women uh, during the 1970s, before Ruth Bader Ginsburg, didn't have to go to do jury duty. They could opt out because of their motherly duties. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, no, they should have that same responsibility. So she started sketching out a legal framework for female equality. And then Roe v. Wade came in and blew that up. And in all states, you know, against federalism and against certain notions said, no, we're going to have a system where you cannot pass any laws whatsoever on abortion for the first two trimesters. And that made it a huge fight that it never would have been. And I agree with uh, Ginsburg when she says that we probably would have just struck down that extreme law and then we could have progressed and slowly accepted abortion. Because that's what's been done in Europe. They have like around the middle of the second trimester. They're fine. It's not a huge issue. And I think the reason for that is we don't have this explosive Roe v. Wade that's impressing an agenda on every single state. Yeah, such a really good point about our history. Uh, why is it so... Why is it such an acidic debate? Probably because the court forced us to. Uh, I think it does surprise a lot of people. The United States is actually way more liberal, if you, you want to use that term, on abortion policy. I mean, we're, Europe is more restrictive. Most of the Asian countries is more, are more restrictive. We are the outliers on abortion, and it probably is because of that. That's a good, that's a good catch. Uh, that's a recommendation to you. It sounds like you've already listened to this. Have you listened to uh, More Perfect from mm -hmm. WNYC yes. on Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her entire career doing that? Yeah. Okay. All right. So I just wanted to toss that last topic out there. I am finished with our bonus episode, unless you have anything else you want to cover, sir. One thing it's that I yours. wanted to say was that obviously it's absurd to just let a baby die once it's outside of yes. the womb. But I think that's a product of people who are saying the baby is alive is not alive right before, and then if you push that further, it's like, well, there's no difference between it right before and when it comes out of the womb, so we're going to say that's not alive either. And I think that's a product of some liberals in academia espousing a very theoretical theory that don't have grounding in the actual impacts this is having on real people's lives. Yeah, that's actually, I, I totally, actually, don't, I don't disagree with any of that. And so we end with a total agreement. Thanks for giving me an hour of your time, man. I appreciate you doing yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Happy uh, we'll, to do we'll it. We'll be back with more, uh, maybe more bonus uh, episodes in the future. And maybe if you, when you're free this summer, maybe another round here with Nathan McDowell. Again, one of the reasons I like to do this is I think we're bad at talking to each other. Uh, there's a new book out by Arthur Brooks called Love Your Enemies that uh, we talked about it last week on the show uh, that really uh, calls us to a better conversation and to respond to uh, people's hatred, to respond to people's... Uh, reactions against us to respond to them nicely, to respond to them lovingly, uh, and so that's one of the things we do here. We talk about things we disagree about, and uh, and we we do it in a way that's that has some amenableness to it. So, anyway, we'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.